Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, August the 2nd, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. The singer-songwriter Billy Bragg has been blending politics and music for almost four decades now, from his early involvement in anti-fascist and left-wing politics in the 1980s to his reworkings of many of the most classic protest songs of the 20th century. He joined me in the Irish Times studio to discuss Brexit and many other things. Billy Bragg, you're very welcome to the podcast. I want to give you an easy question first. What the hell is going on in the UK? Well, what the hell is going on in the UK is hard to talk about in straightforward terms. So we reach for metaphors. Last week I was uh, I did a gig in Cardigan Castle in the far west of Wales. Um, and in the grounds of the castle, there's not much castle left, I'm afraid. It got knocked about a bit in the Civil War. But um, there's a, an old house there where, where the woman who owned the castle lived until recently. And she was living all on her own in this old kind of... It was a sort of like a... I suppose it was a sort of maybe a Regency a Regency farmhouse. And she got so poor and dilapidated that she began to... Burn, first she burned the furniture, then she started burning the floorboards. Um, and it seems to me that that's a good metaphor for the Brexiteers because they, they seem to be willing, in order to keep warm, to burn the house down. You know, they seem to... They're supposed to be conservatives. They're supposed to conserve things. They seem their obsession with leaving the European Union, uh, the idea that they could break up the Union and achieve things that people have only dreamed about, the reunification of Ireland, the independence of Scotland, <laughs> they don't. it doesn't seem to trouble them. They're like, we don't care so long as we get Brexit. And they only, it's that kind of monomania is always dangerous in politics. When I knew you were coming in, there was something I wanted specifically wanted to ask you about because it's been it's been bugging me for a while. Um, I I know that at the start of your career, the Clash were a big influence mm. on you, and because you came through just in that immediate post punk era, rock yeah. against racism was going on, all that stuff. And um, uh, Fintan O'Toole, who's one of our journalists, who's written a, a big book about very Brexit, good, very good book. Um, Someone bought it for me for Christmas. What, uh, actually, I, re- I regularly uh, read Fintan's stuff. He's got that great outsider's perspective. Well, one of the things you'll know then is that um, one of the things Fintan says in the book essentially is that he, he draws parallels between punk and Brexit, and he says that some of the impulses in punk, he points to a certain kind of sadomasochistic thing, which was mm. a sort of King's Road, you know, Vivian Westwood kind of yeah. thing, I suppose. But also a desire just to break things for the sake of breaking things mm. is is a kind of a is a kind of a national impulse in England. I think he's arguing. And John Harris came up with this again about a week ago in the Guardian. Yeah. He sort of returned to it, and he went, "Do you have his quote here? Because I think it's interesting. This is like I think the day that Boris was elected, or just after." He says, "Harris says we're on our way out of the EU because of a collective set of desires akin to the punk." urge to break things along with a connected inability to channel resentment into anything more than gestures of self-harm. It's quite convincing except I don't really know if that's what punk was about. No, it wasn't. Punk was about self-empowerment. You know, if you want to find punk rock today it's in the school strikers. It's in the, the, the kids who are deciding they're going to get out on the street and, and protest without waiting for someone to, to ask them to do it. That's where punk rock really resides. I'm afraid what, what we're seeing in Brexit is uh, an age-old English disease, which is a sort of longing for uh, imperial grandeur and being the centre of, uh, uh, of the sort of uh, geopolitical 
world, and we we no longer are that. And as um, power sort of tilts away towards China and towards India, um, I think both in the United States of America and Great Britain, two former imperial or you know sort of uh, superpowers, uh, the psychosomatic effect to that is is sending them off off the deep end. In America, you've got the Great Replacement Theory, which is like you know. What do you think the United States of America is if it's not a great replacement of the native population? And in, in my country, you're, you've got Boris going around pretending he's Winston Churchill. You know, it's it's he doesn't seem to grasp that Churchill achieved what he achieved because he had a unified parliament in 1940 and a unified nation who were working together in a common aim. He doesn't really have a, even have a unified cabinet. So, you know, these these sort of historical trappings aren't really aren't very helpful to where we are today. Well, one of the things about Brexit, people have remarked, is that it breaks down the traditional, I suppose, you know, party or party political breakdown in, yeah. in the UK, the yeah. traditional left-right, mm. Labour versus Tories. Yeah, yeah. There are, you know, there are Lever Labour voters, there are Remain yeah. Tory voters. Uh, Brexit is essentially a kind of an alliance between kind of the, the old, older, more middle class and upper middle class kind of traditional Tory voters and working class voters who are kind of uncomfortable with the way that the country's gone. Well, I think there's a lot of things going on in Brexit. It's hard to simplify it down to just a couple of causes. You know, you can argue it is the past fight and the present, the future. Um, you know, those of us who see that the, the way to solve the problems that we face is multilateralism against the past in which, you know, we, we were a, an imperial power. But I think the real bedrock problem for those who voted Brexit was a, a sense of, uh, of that they no longer have any agency over their lives, that they no longer uh, are able to vote for things that that actually have, have a positive effect on their economic and social situation. And this lack of agency, I think, is a, uh, a common product of neoliberalism. When you get into a situation where um, the only ideology left is that the market has all the answers and that we should leave the market to do its magic work. And, it, you know, it doesn't matter if uh, we have huge tariffs in the European Union uh, because we've left the union because we'll be able to get great deals everywhere else. The magic of the market will save us, you know, this kind of, this kind of idea. So I think those, those, on one hand, you've got the old-style Tories, Thatcherite Tories, believing that. The, the weight, the mass of the vote are working-class people whose, whose lives have been turned upside down by socioeconomic changes who are just looking to get some kind of purchase on the situation. Um, and I don't, I don't believe that what uh, the Johnson or, or the, the Brexiteers generally are offering is going to resolve those problems. It's just going to pass it on. I mean, they're already lining up people to blame, you know, because it's, you know, it's clearly it's not going to work out the way they want. So they've got, you know, they're going to blame it on Corbyn. They're going to blame it on the European Union. They're going to blame it on the Irish, and they're going to blame it on the boogie. <laughs> you know, it's, straight, it's as straightforward as that. You know, it's, it's all going to be about blame. In your view, does I mean, you've been a Labour supporter for most of your most of your adult life, not not continuously, but most of your adult life. And famously, you were involved in setting up Red Wedge, which mm, yeah. was the, in the 1980s was the movement to, to support the uh, getting Neil Kinnock elected in 1987, mm. which didn't quite get there. Not quite. Um, and in I just wonder, does Tony Blair bear a large responsibility to some extent for the neoliberalism you're talking for about? It, yeah, he does indeed, yeah. Unfortunately, the new Labour project was uh, too reliant on market forces, was too willing to allow the British economy to become uh, financialised and move away from 
uh, a more uh, sort of community-based work. You know, London is now outweighs economically outweighs the rest of the country. Um, I suppose the deal of the the barrier, the, the proposition of the barriers, wasn't it? Was they were going to accept the changes which were brought in by Thatcherism, but the theory was they would be ameliorated by a better social safety net, some 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 investment in. Uh, yeah, it's 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 just another version of trickle down, though, isn't it? Really, you know, the rich will get richer, and we will all benefit. Everyone's boat will be floated. I think that that was already fallen apart before two thousand and eight, but it's impossible to argue that after after the, uh, the the financial squeeze that we had in the last decade. And I think you, you trace the roots of the current discontent in America and uh, and in Britain to the sudden reality of those people realising that there, there is no proper safety net anymore. You know, uh, they uh, they got rid of uh, legal aid in my country to, to save a billion pounds and they're just about to spend 1.5 billion extra on putting the... Uh, the, the uh, plans in for no deal Brexit. So when they want to find the money, they can. And it's that spiteful nature, I think, that, that causes a lot of problems. And that's why I think uh, Corbyn was elected as a rejection of that. You know, you've got to see Corbyn in the context of the uh, 2010 election, the 2015 election, the 2017 election, the, the Scottish referendum. Almost all of those votes went against Westminster. They went against the Westminster Consensus. 2010 failed to produce a, a majority, which, you know, our electoral system is designed specifically to do that, first past the post. That didn't quite work out. The Scottish referendum nearly went tits up, much to everybody's surprise. Um, 2015 just squeaked the Tories in, but uh, really unstable. Obviously, 2017, they didn't get a, a, a majority again. And then I think... New Labour getting swept away so decisively by the Labour Party membership, and Corbyn being put in. These are these are all rejections of as of what's gone on for the last thirty years. Really, the neoliberal consensus, the idea that of Tina, there is no alternative. Um, you know that was the the argument we've been fed both by Thatcher and by Blair. Um, but is Corbyn the best leader for that? Corbyn is a figurehead in the sense that he represents a decisive break with the past. It's not him, it's us. You mustn't think it's just Corbyn. It's, you know, it's those of us who voted for him. So it's momentum. Uh, it's the people, the, the 350,000 people who joined or rejoined the Labour Party to make it the largest political party in Western Europe. It is a strange situation where we have the two main political parties in the UK, one led by a man who has planned his entire life to be leader of the Conservative Party and the other led by a guy who's accidentally become leader of the Labour Party. It is a strange uh, situation to find ourselves in. But fundamentally, we're, we're trying to make a new politics in the Labour Party. We're trying to make a politics for the 21st century. I mean, I could accept all that, but I don't think you quite answered the question. I, do I detect some reservations about about Corbyn as being my the reservations, best to My reservations are to put it all down to one man. And to think it's just Corbyn. Okay. That's my reservation. He represents uh, a different a strain of British politics that hasn't had a voice for a long time, hasn't gone away, and who have been having to hold their nose and vote for people they don't like. Well, at the next election, everybody else is going to have to hold their nose and vote for Corbyn if you want to stop Brexit. So the shoe is on the other foot in that sense. So we've made a transition there. Because a lot of people said, say that the Labour's success, and it was a success in the uh, in the most recent UK uh, general election, was down to the fact that the set of policies which the Labour Party had, which were excoriated as being unreasonable in the mainstream British press and being kind of you know things like renationalizing yeah. the railways yeah, yeah. and so on, were actually extremely popular. All yeah. the opinion polls show they were extremely yeah. popular. 
particular with the, with, with, with the British electorate. Mm. So, as you're saying, the party itself had positioned itself probably more, and, uh, more correctly. But I wonder about, I'm sorry to harp on it, but I wonder about Corbyn. Corbyn is a different kind of a yeah, political figure. His concerns are more about anti-imperialism yeah. and things like that than they are about reshaping the British economy. Presentation is not his strong suit. Yeah. And, uh, and he's come to power at a time when everything is warped by Brexit. It's impossible to, to get... He, I think with regard to his, the frustrations he's caused with people is that he's re- Brexit's really not baby, you know. It, it's a Conservative Party idea. He's not really that much interested in the, the pros and cons of it either way, I don't think. He's not uh, particularly pro-EU. Well, I did, you know, I did, I did events with him during the election campaign uh, on the on a, on a, uh, during the referendum campaign, rather on a Remain and Reform platform. I think that's a that's a viable platform. When he said on TV, they asked him out of you know out of ten how pro EU was, he said seven out of ten. I think that would be the majority of people in the UK who are in favour of the European Union. I don't think you'd ever find anyone who was ten out of ten yeah. in favour of a Parliament that moves from Strasbourg to Brussels every other month. You know, we all have our concerns about that. I'm sure it's the same here in Ireland. So I think he's kind of uh, in a situation where he's having to deal with a uh, a party and uh, electorate who are genuinely split. You know, he's, the, he's you know he's the only lead of a mainstream political party that's trying to find some balance between leave and remain. He's trying to square that really, really difficult circle. But he finds himself in a in a situation where at the European elections in the UK, people voted either for, uh, you know, no deal or, you know, hard, hard Brexit or another referendum. You know, there was no... The, where he is, it's a famous quote: "If you take the middle of the road, you're going to get run down." Yeah, that's true, but it's but it's not the middle of the road that's missing in this one. What's missing is the nuance around Brexit. People want easy answers: either leave or another referendum. No one's interested in the nuance. Whereas, actually, for those of us who want to remain in the European Union. It's only nuance that is going to save us. It's going to be the nuance of the Irish border. It's going to be the nuance of the Good Friday Agreement. It's going to be the nuance of our relationship, economic relationship with the European Union, which only come into focus when we actually get down to the nitty-gritty of seeing what leaving the European Union practically looks like. And one of Boris Johnson's um, tactics clearly is not to let people see what that is. This is why he won't engage with the European Union until they give him what he wants. Because if he went to Europe and sat down practically to try and work out how to do this, the massive problems um, with regard to the practical uh, economic relationship we have with the European Union would be revealed. The 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 fact that the you know it will involve un, unthreading the Good Friday Agreement. The fact that the the issue of the Irish border, in terms of really mundane things like VAT between Belfast and Dublin, would 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 cause the most ridiculous kind of uh, imbalances, economic imbalances, and he does he really doesn't want to deal with that. Hence the we're going for no deal, and we're not going to talk to anyone until they give us what we want. But he's clearly got a strategy. So yeah, strategy could... is don't hurt my unicorns. You know, they've got all these unicorns there and they won't send them into battle against Varadka. They could easily be doing that now. They could easily be sitting down saying, OK, we've got to work out how to deal with this situation. We want to keep the Good Friday Agreement intact. We don't want there to be a border. What are the real practical issues here and how can we get around that? Let's sit down on the ground and see what it is. What has he done? A quick phone call. And I'm not doing this until you 
give me what I want. That doesn't seem like someone with a plan. On the other hand, as someone who knows he's on a clock, in fact, he keeps going on about the clock because it's do or die, come what may, October 31st, the UK goes Yeah, but that's all says, for the benefit of the European sure, Union. Sure, but, but October 31st is a real date. And, yeah, so is uh, March the 23rd. One of the dates they were talking about was the Sunday at Glastonbury this year. I was like, oh, please don't do that again. Because <laughs> the referendum went down while we were at Glastonbury, you know. <laughs> that was bad enough. That put a, that harsh the vibe for the weekend. Yeah, that's not exactly the worst thing about what happens now. <laughs> no, no, but you know what I'm saying. It, those, those dates are, are, are there to, you know, to, to focus everybody's mind. Nobody really wants the car crash that, that would be leaving with no deal. But uh, you know, well, there's some people now on the front front bench. There's some people in the government. I think Dominic Rab looks fairly, you know, sanguine about the prospect. Yeah, I don't think the reality of that, um, you know, no deal would absolutely destroy the Conservative Party probably for a generation. You know, it would, it, they would be out. They'd be gone. It would consume them. And that's always been the, the, the danger with Brexit, that it could absolutely destroy the Conservative Party, but also could absolutely destroy the Labour Party as sure. well. Because they're... they're I mean, previously, I mean, Johnson's now changed that, but previously they were the, they were trying to get to grips practically with it, you know, the withdrawal agreement. You know, Prime Minister May ultimately accepted the backstop because that was the only real practical thing to do. There's no well, other practical way well, to do that. Actually, it was the British who suggested the backstop, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. It, was a, it was a compromise yeah, put exactly, forward by yeah. the British. So they were at least trying to put some, you know, some clothes onto the, the sort of unicorn of, of, of Brexit. But Johnson is not at all interested in that because... He is aware that, uh, as von Moltke said, no uh, battle plan survives contact with the enemy. Yeah. Now, it looks like there's a possibility that he might take a huge risk and force or allow himself to be forced into a general election sooner rather than later. Before and the 31st? Well, yeah. I mean, some people are some people are suggesting that. You know, you might have, you know, a block, you know, there clearly is a majority in the House of Commons against no deal, and he might use that as, as an excuse to go to the country. Just for a moment, if that were to happen... One of the things that I think it would cause him to do that is because the opposition is so split and in such disarray yeah. and such a Did mess. Did you see how, how far Theresa May was ahead in the polls in 2017? Yeah, oh yeah, I know. I'm not saying I'm not saying it's a gimme, but, <laughs> but given, got, given the options, yeah, <clears throat> he would like to have a general election on Brexit. The general election yeah. will be on Boris Johnson. That is what the general election will be about. Do we want these people in charge? This this cabinet of hangers and floggers, and you know. Johnson with his derogatory comments about gays, about uh, people of colour, about uh, Muslim women. Is this really who represents us or not? Because that's what all this shit comes down to. What kind of people are we? But in your very odd uh, electoral system, if you don't mind me saying so, it's possible to get a comfortable majority in the House of Commons if the opposition is split with 35% of the voters. Who's the opposition to Boris Johnson at the moment? Well, who is the opposition? The Brexit Party. Mm. You know, once you... It's hard enough with a, a... you know, if the, if the numbers stay the way they are, you know, sort of everybody's in the 20s. Whew. I mean, it's hard enough to predict anything with Brexit anyway. It's like, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's like a three-way football match. It's like, <laughs> you know, who's, the, what's the, who's offside there? You know, yeah. so a three-way election with the Brexit party in, that kind of like, uh, you know, the angry, uh, the angry white man in England is not going to, believe, uh, you know, when, when Farage is already saying Dominic Cummings is a, a Remainer. I mean, this is where, the, where the Alice in Wonderland through the Looking Glass World we're in now. Um, in a general election with the, with the Brexit party involved, if they have an election before they deliver Brexit, they, they are really, you know, they're coming around for another crack at the iceberg on the Titanic, you know. It's, it could really be dangerous to them. What would happen to Labour in that? It's hard to say. You know, people are regularly asking me, friends, 
and mm. sometimes enemies, why I remain a Labour Party supporter and a, and a Corbyn supporter. I rejoined the Labour Party because Corbyn said that policy will be made by members. I'm interested in agency. I'm really interested in that. And slowly but surely, our maybe a glacial pace for some people, our position has moved. And I believe it ultimately will it will move to a remain and a referendum on in all cases where people Why want. Why so to slow? Be. Because the balance within the Labour Party uh, is still we're the only party that's trying to square up leavers and remainers. When we look back at all this, everybody said, why didn't anybody compromise? And we'll be able to say, well, Labour Party were trying to do that and, and Corbyn got absolutely nothing but stick for it for sitting on the fence, in inverted commas, and trying to find some middle ground between the two. And it would be great if we could have found it, but it ain't there. And for all my, uh, you know, sort of analysis in terms of that, Boris Johnson has completely changed the game. He's completely changed the game. And if you play, if we play the same way as against him as we played against May, we're going to be in real trouble. You know, England's women done a great job in the World Cup, but they played exactly the same against the United States of America as they played against, uh, I can't remember who it was that they played against before and just beat. You know, playing from the back, long balls. The USA just closed them down. I couldn't believe it watching it. They're a completely different team, America, and they should have had a completely different tactic. And Boris Johnson is a completely different uh, uh, Brexit game. The other thing that strikes me about what, what you just said is that uh, the Labour Party became more democratic, there was an influx of new, committed, energetic members. That's all great. Those members are really heavily pro-Remain. Now, I know that there are strategic and tactical reasons why in certain constituencies, particularly in the Midlands and the North, uh, there are Labour voters who which the party is afraid of losing. But if it is a democratic party, driven by the wishes of the members, it should be a Remain party, shouldn't it? That's my f- argument exactly. <laughs> You know, that's what's going to happen. Either at conference or if there's a if there's a referendum before, uh, if there's an election before, we will have to come up with a with a policy, and it will have to be ratified by the membership. And because the membership is broadly speaking pro-remain, it's just a matter of how how we manifest that, what we offer. Obviously, the thing that everybody's going to want is a referendum on on every deal. You know, guaranteed referendum, whatever the deal is, our deal, a Tory deal, every deal. That's what people are going to want. But I worry about another referendum. I think it's a very divisive uh, mechanism for deciding a a situation like that. Suppose we win 52-48. You know, we really need to win 65-35 and put it to bed for a generation. You know, that's what we really need. And I just don't think that the Remain movement outside the Labour Party has done the work necessary to convince the... 15% 15% of, of leavers to come over. They're still relying on on them thinking it'll be a, uh, it's going to be a bad deal. Well, we've always known it's going to be a bad deal. It didn't stop them voting for it in the first place. So personally, if it was down to me, I would actually prefer that we were offering a, a citizens' assembly to look at Brexit because I think um, what we really need is everybody's voice needs to be heard because what will happen if we have, a, if we have another ref- referendum, it'll be all Nigel Farage on one side and Blair on the other side. And and whatever you think of Blair, he's a very polarising character for Leave voters. And we're kind of giving the debate back to them. Whereas we, what we need is is people to sit down and, and talk about these issues and try and thrash something out. And I think the Irish model of a citizens' assembly is a positive way to do that. Now, it might be they throw up the idea of, a, you know, another referendum and they come to that conclusion. But at least it will have come from a place of consensus. At least it would have been achieved by deliberation rather than yaboo politics. You know, we're going to have another winner-takes-all referendum. I mean, that's the most divisive day in my country's history in the last, well, since the war, really. Um, and it's going to take us, whatever happens, it's going to take us a long time to find some kind of sort of 
consensus about who we are as a people. Um, so I think that when we have the election, the Labour Party will be, have gone that last inches because they have come an incredibly long way already, the Labour Party, by by the process of debate, by the process of deliberation. Um, you know, the Liberal Democrats with their bollocks to Brexit is a great idea in a European election, but that's not going to win you a general election where there's, you know, much more bread and butter issues on the table. So the Labour Party, I think, needs to offer Remainers the right of a, another referendum, which seems to be what they want. I think that's a pragmatic thing to do. And I think it's what the party wants generally. And I believe that Corbyn is enough of a believer in accountability and democracy that he will accept that. You know, he accepted nuclear, uh, retaining nuclear weapons, which is something he's always campaigned against all his life. But that didn't go in the manifesto because the party didn't vote for it. So I'd prefer that kind of party to how it was before, where we were shanghaied into the Iraq war without any, any you know, despite millions of us marching on the streets around the country. Um, you know, the command and control aspect of new labour bounced us into that. Whereas with Corbyn, you can see it's a slow, deliberative process. OK, it's frustrated. I'm frustrated by it. I, I agree that. But there is a process going on there. Everybody else is more or less in the same position they were in 2016 with regard to the Lib Dems and the Greens and, and the other parties. How do music and politics intersect these days? I mean, when you were coming through there, it was kind of, it was much more overt. I had an argument with somebody here in the Irish Times the other day. It was a typical two old middle-aged men arguing uh, type of argument about how protest music didn't exist anymore in the same way as it had with Dylan in the 60s or indeed with The Clash and yourself in the, in the 1980s. And, you know, the argument as it tends to happen these days dribbled out onto Twitter and there was a bit of toing and froing about how there's plenty of, you know, there's plenty of radical hip-hop out there and there's plenty of music. It's just that old middle-aged white blokes don't listen to it. You know, what do you think? Old middle-aged white blokes don't listen to it. I mean, basically what has happened since you and I were listening to political... I was making political music in the, in the 20th century is that music has lost its vanguard role in youth culture. Yeah. You know, if you want to know, uh, you know, where, where the new punk rock is, it's Fortnite whether we like it or not. That's just the way things have changed around that. But music still has an important role to play. You know, that it, people. that's why more people want to go to gigs. You know, it's not forgotten. Uh, but it doesn't have that vanguard role. Yeah. In the 1980s, if I wanted people in Dublin to hear what I had to say, uh, there weren't many medium, uh, medium, mediums open to me. You know, no one was asking me to come and write in the Irish Times. Uh, back in the day. So if I wanted to do that, I had to learn to play guitar, write songs and do gigs and hope eventually that that would get me across the Irish Sea and I'd be able to stand on stage physically in Dublin and, and make my point and make a record, send the record out there. Now, if you're 15 or uh, uh, eight, uh, 18 years old and you have something to say, you know, you've got so many different ways to do that. You know, you can, you can make a film on your iPhone and edit it on your iPhone and get it out there. So... The, the need to, to get up in front of people and actually perform, which is a big ask for a lot of people. It doesn't seem a long way. It's the height of this table, the stage in, the, in Whelan's, but that step up for some people is a big psychological step. You don't need to do that anymore. So Owen Jones can write for The Guardian rather than having a former synthesizer duo with Laurie Penny or whatever, yeah. you know. Yeah, that, although he, he looks like he fit into a synthesizer duo. Exactly. There's a lot of young people out there who, who would do that. But having said that, there are still people who are using music in the way that we used it in the 20th century. In the 20th century, all young people were marginalised. 
There wasn't no young people in the, uh, talking in the Irish Times. You just didn't hear it, or any other newspaper, daily newspaper. So we had to use music. Then it was our social medium. You know, it, it told you uh, how to dress, who to hang out with, where to go, who not to hang out with. It was, it, although we didn't think of it as a social medium, that, that's what it was. But now there are still communities who are marginalised, like uh, young black men in the UK, who are still using music as a way of breaking down the barriers of their marginalisation. You know, if, if, you know, take Stormzy, for instance, you know, in order for him to get into my timeline, he needed to make some great music. And that gave him a platform. And from that platform, he was able to speak about Grenfell uh, and uh, attack the Prime Minister live on TV. I mean, how powerful is that? So don't tell me there's no politics in music anymore. It's just that the dynamic of, of youth culture has changed. But there's still, there's still people out there making music, and music is still bringing people together, not so much to, to um, change the world, but to give them that feeling that they're not alone. You know, what I'm talking about at my gigs is how do we deal with our cynicism? How do we keep our cynicism at bay? You know, one of the things that you get from coming to a gig and all singing there is Power in the Union, one of my songs. You get, you get a sense that there are other people who give a shit about this stuff. So you're not in isolation. You know, there's a room full of people in Dublin who care about this stuff. And, and as a member of the audience, you want to take that home because I take that home. When I come off stage, my activism is recharged from the way the audience responds. And what I'm trying to do is make the audience go away with that same feeling so that their activism is recharged as well. You can call it preaching to the converted if you like, but what I'm doing is is helping the people to kick their cynicism to the curb because there's a lot of cynicism out there these days. And music has the ability to, to, to kind of get past that you know and it doesn't have to be political music as well by the way you know if you go if you go and see let's say you go and see Adele and she's you know she's singing a song that you've invested a huge amount of emotion in and you're singing it and a thousand other people are singing it whatever emotion you've put into that is kind of accepted you know there's a solidarity in there there's a communion mm. that you can't get online you can't get that on Facebook and that's the kind of thing isn't it because if you know and I accept everything you say there mm. about Stormzy and about Fortnite and about everything else but if the way in which people are interacting or, or speaking or finding their voice or doing that is through digital platforms mm. um, for example it's going to work in a different way than the kind of the, 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 there is something tangible and also there's something there's something I don't know transcendent I suppose about music itself yeah. isn't it yeah. it's highly emotional yeah. it works it works in a different kind of a way than a social media post, for but, example. But it has something that you can't get on social media, which is that sense of being being in a communion with other people around something that everybody loves. Mm -hmm. You know, people. So have we lost that? No, it's still there. It's still there. It's just not the main focus of uh, of youth culture. It's not the 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 be all and end all. You know, as it was uh, in the in the twentieth century. All that, that's why youth uh, pop music was so broad because it had to encompass all everything that young people experienced, all the way from politics to you know, to love and football, everything, all in there, you know, and how you could work with that. And everybody was watching it. Everyone was listening to John Peel. Everyone was tuning into Dave Fanning. Everyone was, like, in that same space. So if you did something, the community would all see it. That's atomised now, both in the terms of the music industry is atomised. Uh, but so that also, means there'll never be another punk rock? No. The youth school strikers are the new punk rock. You're looking for the clash again. Forget it. There's no going to be white boys with guitars doing that again. You know, there'll be white boys with guitars, but it won't have that that dynamic. I don't think. Who knows? It might, but you look in the wrong place, man. If you're looking for if you're looking for another. So clash. Extinction Rebellion and the kind of communities which have developed around that, and the kind of the the, the street activism that mm. develops around that. That's what. That's the I think problem. so. Yeah, I think yep. the accountability movements, Extinction Rebellion, Me Too, Black Lives Matter. This is where the cutting edge in our culture and youth culture is now. I went down to um, 
Bristol last week, week before last, for Extinction Rebellion. And I was invited specifically by XR Youth, young people, organised, and they clearly never put a gig on. I only realised that when the desk caught fire. But um, fortunately, by then, the speakers had already been, and they were all very young uh, young people. A 14-year-old girl gave her most powerful speech, reminded me of doing gigs for the miners in, in 1984, going into the coal fields, when I'm doing the gigs where the miners were either on the picket line or, or in jail, and it will be miners' wives who came and spoke, working-class women who'd never spoken in public before, talking about the, the strike from a... The, uh, an angle of personal experience, some of the most powerful stuff I've ever seen. And these uh, these young women were, had that same sort of vibe. I was very, very impressed with them. I when I listen to your music, and it's not all political, by the way, obviously it's, 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 it's about lots of politics, politics, right? life yeah. and love and everything, and, and everything else. It's in a tradition, obviously, people would recognise that 20th century tradition mm. of protest music to Dylan and Woody Guthrie and yeah. back in that, that kind of way too. But it also goes back to kind of a, a previous sort of radical tradition of the pamphlet, doesn't it? As the, a way yeah, of, it is. And I, oddly enough, I've just written a pamphlet uh, called The uh, Three Dimensions of Freedom that's trying to get to grips with the, uh, uh, the idea of, uh, of agency, really. That um, I'm concerned that the flourishing of social media has left us in a situation where <clears throat> freedom is defined merely as freedom of speech, the right to say whatever you want to say, whenever you want to say it, to whoever you want to say it with no comeback. And if that's the definition of of liberty, then forget Martin Luther King, we have to look no further than Donald Trump's Twitter feed to see that shining example of what it means to be free. You know, The problem with Trump's Twitter feed is first, he has no conception of equality, the second dimension of freedom, in that he's willing to let other people speak. He's not. He doesn't want to hear anybody else's voice. Uh, and he's he's not willing to respect their point of view. You know, if you're going to be in a in a free society, you've got a you're empowered by liberty, but you also have to reciprocate that right to everybody else and respect that right so that people respect your right. And and I'm afraid that without um Without equality being there, then liberty really is nothing more than privilege. And you can see that, you know, with, with those, um, uh, you know, predominantly right-wing commentators who, you know, throw their arms up whenever they're challenged over something they've said and say, oh, you're not allowed to say X, Y, Z now, when they've just actually said X, Y, Z anyway and they said it in the spectator or on, on the TV or whatever. Um, you know, it's not free speech they want, it's free reign. And, and I think that without equality... Liberty, really, freedom of speech is nothing more than privilege. And what's the third freedom? The third freedom is accountability, the most important one of all, I think. And we're in a situation now where where that's the hole in the donut, the thing that's missing in uh, Western uh, political discourse, the ability to hold those in power uh, to account, not just politically either. If you um, imagine freedom to be a positive thing, it broadly is, but there are dangerous types of freedom. Freedom without accountability is impunity. And we have a president of the United States and a prime minister in Great Britain who've lived their lives mostly, uh, you know, by uh, rejecting any form of accountability. That's very, very dangerous, you know. And the, the notion that democracy is enough, I'm, I'm not so sure about that. Democracy and accountability are not synonymous. You know, they're, they're, their relationship is more like a Venn diagram in which 
at times of consensus, there's a lot of overlap between democracy and accountability. But there are other times, such as now, when the two are sliding away from one another. And democracy is no longer, particularly in a voting system that we have in the UK and the Americans have as well, that that pure democracy on its own is not enough to to for the citizens to feel they have some agency over their lives. The choices that they're offered are are far too narrow. So, you know, I'm I'm trying to make that case that we need to have uh, uh, greater accountability. But it's not just in terms of authoritarianism or algorithms or neoliberalism itself, but also in terms of our own social discourse online. You know, it has an element there, you know, the idea of the safe space, which is... Um, Often derided. Derided, yeah, because it's derided by people who want to say whatever they want to whoever they want and no comeback. A safe space is not designed to control the debate. It's designed to control the tone of the debate. A safe space is about respect. It's about equality. It's about deliberation. It's about not shouting at one another. It's about not being provocative. So you get someone like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, and he's just a provocateur. He just wants to wind people up. You know, it's just, they're, you know, they're trying to trigger people. And you can't have a... a a sort of reasonable discourse with people like that who are just coming for the wind-up. So those young people who are creating safe spaces, they're digital natives, most of them. They understand that if you express views that are considered outside of the mainstream, you're going to get attacked for it. So they're just trying to set up a situation where everyone can say what they want to say uh, and, and be respected. You know, I have had a bit of a... You know, I've had a bit of a ding-dong with regard to some of the things that Morrissey has been saying. Mm. Morrissey can say whatever he likes. I'm not trying to stop Morrissey's freedom of speech. He can say whatever he likes, but what he can't uh, have is not be challenged about it. He can't turn around and say, as he said uh, the other day, as an artist, I have no freedom of uh, speech. I mean, it's just ridiculous. It's a ridiculous concept. What he means is, as an artist, I should be able to say whatever I like and people should just be, you know, oh, well, Morrissey said something. It don't work like that anymore. So... I'm not really so much having a go at him as having a go at a, a media that doesn't hold him to account. You know, that's what's missing in that process. And it's left to me to make, you know, piffy posts on Facebook uh, in order to get a bit of accountability there. And it, it goes both ways. I mean, you know, having said that, just, this isn't a left or right argument. The Labour Party needs to be held to account for its membership that are expressing anti-Semitic views. I mean, that's been a nightmare for the Labour Party. Exactly, it? it has been a, light, a nightmare. And they haven't really been able to get to, to, get to grips with it because of the slippery, slippery na nature of, uh, of social media. You know, in, in the old days, it was, it was much, much easier to control it. There were gatekeepers around those kind of things. And those people were, were, were kept, at, you know, either out of the party or at arm's length, which is not the way to deal with it, obviously. But, but now, uh, you know, the, the process has got to, to where it's... Um, you know, taking up so much of the bandwidth for what the Labour Party's message should be. And the awful, sickening irony is, is the people who are, you know, winding it up are people who think, who think they're defending Corbyn. They don't understand that they're giving the enemies of his project a stick with which to beat him. Isn't that kind of the sort of the, the the ultimate one of the ultimate downsides of social media is everybody just jumps into the two polarized camps and just you know slings insults to each other you know that, that it's not doesn't lend itself to uh, to a productive discourse. Social media is a is a dark mirror to society. 
It's not social media that's the problem. Social media is a great invention because it allows people to, to communicate, it allows people to express themselves without having to learn to play the guitar, to do, write songs, do gigs, get up on stage, come to Dublin. I'm all in favour of, of social media. But we are still human beings. We still have that dark side and we still, you know, there are those who, who, who take pleasure in tormenting others, sadly. You know, no society is free from that. No society is is free from the, that that strain of of uh, bigotry, and uh, that's why accountability is a very very important aspect in the in the age of social media. You know, I'm I'm trying to offer a set of parameters by which we can deal with these problems because the old days in the 20th century, not only did we have the clash uh, and dodgy haircuts, but we also had each of us had our ideology. And, and people understood about ideology, and that gave you a framework with which to test ideas in the world and see if they were, you know, if they fit with your principles. We kind of don't have that anymore. So by bringing together the idea of, of liberty, equality, and accountability, I'm trying to set up a framework in which we can uh, look at situations, look at characters, and try and decide whether or not they they are really upholding the principles on which our society. It should be based, which is a, a principle of fairness, a principle of uh, um, respect, and a principle of accountability. You know, that's what democracy is supposed to be about. But as I say, at the moment, I fear that the two are, are drifting apart. I'd love to ask you much more, but we have to wind it up there. Mm-hmm. Billy Bragg, it was brilliant having you in. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me in. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. Do rate us or give us a review. It always helps to get us out to a broader audience. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast and your views are very welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening. Listener.